Did you hear about this breaking news? The apps Receipt Bank and Xavier both have joined together under one single brand name, Dext. Receipt Bank is now Dext Prepare and Xavier is now Dext Precision. Stay tuned to learn more from our sponsor, Dext, later in the episode. It's not like they sent mistakenly $800 million. So that they weren't supposed to have. It was was a loan payment. So how the heck did Citi accidentally pay hundreds of millions of dollars that they so <laughs> like this is nuts and then this is all in court and, and it's a combination of people errors and processes as well as the fundamental real issue is crappy computer software today is february 20th 2021 i'm blake oliver welcome to the cloud accounting podcast and I'm David Leary. I did that weird. I'm going to start that over. <laughs> you, you, you left me out. That's okay. It's only been like 215 episodes. You don't have to cut it. It's good. All right. Well, David, how, how are you? How are you doing? It's it's past mid February. We're well into 2021. Well, let's see how I'm doing. Because Blake, you know what I have now? I now own Bitcoin. You you, you bought Bitcoin? Oh, oh no! I bought Bitcoin. So but didn't you listen to my latest episode in which I'm incredibly skeptical of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin? That's possible. The the bonus episode that we dropped this week, uh, the crypto update. You weren't on that interview because apparently you know you're you're too busy. You got better things to do. But well, I'd rather um, experience the the Bitcoin thing. Uh-huh. So here here's what I did. Uh, okay. So you know, like some people will send you like your real estate agent or somebody will send you a lottery ticket. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For Christmas and a Christmas card. I've never had that happen, but okay, you have a weird you have a weird real estate agent. I, I, I've won four bucks. You know? I won four bucks. All right. So I go to the uh we had to buy some stamps or just at the, the customer service counter at the grocery store. Next to the customer service counter is like, hey, I'll two for one, I'll cash my lottery ticket. So they have them with the machines. And instead of me just exchanging and getting more lottery tickets, you know at the grocery stores you got your your lottery machine, you got your red box you know, for your DVDs. Yeah, yeah. Right? And Redbox is actually created by this other company called Coinstar or CoinMe. And that's where you just take all loose change from your car and you put it in there and they print out a little voucher. Oh no, don't tell me they've got like Bitcoin machines now. Yes. So I took my $4 from my winning lottery ticket and I bought $4 of Bitcoin. So it's like a, just a machine where you put in money and it gives you Bitcoin? It gives you like a little voucher. Then I go home and I sign up and then I redeem my voucher. So I had to set up. So I now have a, a, a wallet on something called coinme.com. Okay. Now it's not a separate app. So it's only in the web, the web browser. Mm-hmm. And so and I own a balance. So then I was like, all right, this is cool. Maybe I could send, you know, so, so one you Satoshi f- to Blake. You have four, $4 worth of Bitcoin. No, because I paid a fee. So I have $3.59 <laughs> of Bitcoin right now. Okay. All right. And then I went to send it and I was like, all right, can I send this to Blake? And apparently I can send you something, but there's a transaction fee of $14.06. Yeah. (laughs) So basically I now have $4 in Bitcoin that I will never be able to get out of this app. And this is one of the problems with Bitcoin that we talked about in that bonus episode with Sheehan and uh, Sean Stein-Smith. It's that... It's just not a very good method of payment because it's so uh, expensive and time-consuming, and it requires a lot of resources to to add a block to the blockchain. It's ridiculous that we can trade stocks for free, but it costs fourteen dollars to send Bitcoin. 
so I, I guess it, maybe the learning was worth the four dollars. Yeah. Um, oh, definitely. That's cool, though. But I'm starting uh, to think I should have got four new lottery tickets. <laughs> Probably better choice at this point. It's well, you know, same. you know, hey, if if Bitcoin's going to the moon like they say it is, then uh, you know, maybe your four dollars will be worth four hundred dollars. We'll see. Oh, then then the transaction fee might be worth it, but the transaction fee I noticed is based off of Bitcoin. So. As Bitcoin goes up, the transaction fee is going to go up because yesterday the transaction fee was only thirteen ninety nine. Anyway, that's cool that you have that. You know, you realize that what you have done, David, though, is you have now you have now required yourself to answer that ten forty question that says, "Do I own oh, any?" Shit. Yeah, oh, shit. yeah. So now now you're red flagged by the IRS. Oh so, boy. Yeah, because I had to take a picture of my driver's license and take right. a selfie of myself. I had to get validated, verified, and validated. Right, but so you have to answer that question, and you have to report your cryptocurrency now. And if you ever like buy anything with it, you have a capital gain or loss on the transaction. You're going to get a ten ninety nine, or you're going to have to report it. So, and if it increases in value, do I still have to report the gain in value, even if I don't sell it? No, but when you do sell it, you got to report the gain or the loss. Oh man! So so basically, I've created myself like a hundred dollars in bookkeeping to track this four dollar transaction. You're welcome. Thank you, Bitcoin. All right, so I, I, I'm done with Bitcoin now. We can stop. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Odoo. Do you have a client that has outgrown QuickBooks or Zero, Or do you have a client that is still on QuickBooks Desktop Enterprise Edition because all the current cloud accounting offerings lack the depth of features and controls that your clients need? Or maybe you have a client with legacy desktop ERP system and they are ready to move to the cloud. Let me introduce you to Odoo. Odoo is a highly customizable cloud ERP system with everything your clients need, including dozens of built-in app modules and thousands of third-party apps. The accounting and invoicing modules are always free, so there's no reason not to give Odoo a try today. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Odoo. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-D-O-O. Well, speaking of taxes, tax season is... I think we're like a week into it. It was delayed this week until what, February 12th, 13th, 14th. I can't remember. But tax season is kicked off and lawmakers are already starting to complain to the IRS about how it's going so slow. And I'm reading this article here in Accounting Today about this. The headline is tax season off to a slow start. Lawmakers complain to IRS. And it makes me wonder if these like lawmakers are just idiots <laughs> because tax season was delayed they're complaining that the IRS has only processed one third of the number of tax returns processed by this time last year. But the filing season has only been going for like a week. It hasn't been going for the same amount of time. So they're comparing last year to this year and it doesn't make any sense. And last year was based on the 2019 tax year where it was a normal year. 2020 of all these other issues. There's stimulus and there's, right, yeah. uh, you got the loan and you can claim the loan. You can't claim the loan expenses. Like there's, there's all these reasons for it not to be on time. It, it, exactly. So this is a letter from two of the guys on the committee uh, on ways and means, right? Which oversees the IRS, I guess. Uh, and they wrote a letter, Neil and Pascrell, uh, one week into a shortened filing season, the IRS reported that it received about 20 million returns on February 12th, 
the opening day of the 2021 return filing season and processed only 14 million returns. This pace is significantly behind the nearly 40 million returns received and processed last year through February 14, 2020. But they were they were open, and there, like you said, there weren't all these problems. So I don't know, kind of weird. Uh, the other thing here is the committee is also asking the IRS to extend the tax deadline for three months, like last year until July 15th because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, they did that on Thursday. So is April 15th going to be the deadline? Uh, maybe not. There's a chance that uh, it gets extended again, which I know is not going to be great news for for our tax preparer listeners, if any of them are even listening during busy season. Well, especially since this year. So last year, like account, usually accountants have that little bit of downtime in the summer. You can go to accounting conferences, et cetera. It's starting to feel like possibly, you know, with the vaccine and the way things are rolling out, we might be able to actually do an in-person thing at the end of the summer here. The last thing we want to do is have it now be unable to go to an event because tax deadlines have moved. Mm. And, you know, I'm really bullish on that, actually. So the way viruses work, they're, they're exponential. So they grow exponentially, which means that they, they grow faster than you would imagine because exponential growth is hard to comprehend. And that's why it seemed like at the beginning of March, we were all fine. And then within like a few weeks, the whole country was shut down. And that was shocking. Well, the good news is that pandemics can end the same way because it's the same exponential uh, deflation or, or decrease. And that's why you're seeing this massive drop in infections right now across the country. I spotted an article in the Wall Street Journal about this, where the author is saying this could be over by April, because enough people have been infected, and enough people are starting to get the vaccine where we do have actual herd immunity, meaning that there's nowhere for the virus to jump to. There's not enough people who are able to be infected. So once that happens, and your reproductive rate drops below one, if it drops enough below one, it exponentially uh, declines. So like, I'm actually very bullish on the idea that this could be over in April, definitely by summer. So yeah, I, I hope we get to go to the conferences. The problem is that people don't think this way. And so a lot of conferences that were scheduled for June or you know May or June are already canceled. Yeah, and I've been watching the, you know, I tend to only really watch the my county's numbers, mm -hmm. right? Is what I really kind of focus on. And when they started doing the vaccines, there was still like 300 or um, 900 days to like herd, herd immunity. So the vaccines were just being rolled out so slowly. And at that time, kind of they were, it was at the peak of infections. Right. Right. There was, a, so it was, it was supposed to be about a three year run to get to herd, uh, herd immunity, which is a part, I guess my understanding is like 70% vaccinated or something. Right. And now that number's dropped down to, I've watched it drop down to 160, 180, 190. It's bouncing around in that age range based on how many vaccines are going out. And then that reproduction number I've noticed is almost back down to zero again. So you're right. Like as you get ahead of it, it almost feels like it's a flywheel that's going to go faster and faster and faster. Well, and those numbers, when it comes to herd immunity for vaccinations, they're not taking into account people who have already had COVID most of the time when they do those numbers, because there's not studies that have been done to see whether or not those people can be reinfected. But it's not like we're seeing a huge number of people get reinfected that already had it. So it's pretty safe to assume that if you've had it, you're not likely to get it again. Or if you do, it's not going to be severe. And that's the sort of thing, though, that a public health person is just not going to say because they want people to keep wearing masks. They want people to keep social distancing. And so they're afraid to be too optimistic because they want everybody to, you know, keep doing what we've been doing until this thing goes away. 
Uh, but I don't have those obligations. So I'm happy to tell you that in my non-professional opinion, like we're, this is good news. Like, we're, yeah, we're, yeah. It's very clear if I just look at only my, my county, like the exact opposites of the spike has happened as a decline. Almost perfectly the same yeah. decline is happening right now. Now, I don't want to jinx this. But, <laughs> but yes, anyways, the point is we might be able to get out of this and then there's going to be a new tax deadline and all the accounts are going to be locked inside still. Uh you know, maybe the the trick is that we just need to take control of our calendars in busy season. Kyle Walters, who is a partner at LNH CPAs and Advisors, wrote a great article on accounting today in the opinion section called Take Control of Your Calendar This Busy Season. And he offers a very simple tip that I have been using myself in a form for a while now, which is to break your calendar into chunks of time, like multiple hours two hours or more, and just do one type of work during that time. So for example, you know, you've got a whole 12 hour day that you're going to, you're going to fill in busy season. Well, in the morning from say eight to 10, all you do is answer client questions and go through, churn through your inbox and return calls and that's it. And then from like one o'clock to three o'clock, all you do is take calls from prospects because busy season is busy because as a partner, a lot of times you're talking to new people who need help. So you're also trying to get new business. You just do that during that one block of time. And then let's say you, for two other chunks before lunch, and then in the late afternoon, all you do is churn through returns or do that focused work, whatever you're doing. And, and that is so much more effective than trying to multitask the whole day. And it's been proven that that is that's way more effective. And I don't know about you, David, but- Oh, like, I block I, my calendar out like this. Now, I, I will tell you, it is not, it's not successful. I still struggle with this. I've been struggling with this for three, four years. Like I'll block it out. And then sometimes it's just like everybody's emergency seems to overrule your calendar. And I don't know how to get around that other than disconnecting everything. Disconnecting all forms of communication is the only way. Like be on an airplane. If I'm in an airplane and there's no, and turn off the Wi-Fi, then you can- make this happen. But outside of that, it's very hard with all the connected inputs we have. If you turn on do not disturb on your computer, are people going to get upset? Like, does it really matter if it takes you two hours to get back to that Slack message? Or is it that urgent? That's the the decision you have to make if you want this to work. Well, I feel like it, it trickles, right? So you ignore it, you're, you ignore an email or you ignore a Slack. And then now that person like sends an email and they call a voicemail and they send you a text and they send you a WhatsApp. And so now you have Five times as many no, things. Those are just horrible people. You shouldn't like work with those people. That's just awful. Why would they do that? <laughs> That's how we were. Like if it's really urgent, my philosophy has always been if it's really urgent, you need to call me, pick up the phone. If you don't pick up the phone and call me, it's not that urgent. It can wait. Yeah. And that's. I think that's what the expectation we just need to send to our coworkers. I mean, or establish as practice leaders. I got one more tax story before we move on. Yeah. Um, so Democrats are in control of Congress and the presidency. So- Naturally, we're going to expect some legislation once stimulus has gotten through on taxes. There's a couple of bills in Congress right now that have been reintroduced. So uh, Representative Peter DeFazio of Oregon, Democrat of Oregon, has introduced a bill called the IRS Enhancement and Tax Gap Reduction Act. That would mandate minimum audit levels for high-income individuals along with high-gross income corporations and will significantly increase IRS funding levels over the next decade. There's a second bill by Representative Ro Khanna of California called the Stop Corporations and Hire Earners from Avoiding Taxes and Enforce Rules Strictly 
Act, which is uh, shortened to Cheaters Act. I like that. That's good, right? It was a TV show, right? Cheaters? Yeah, I think so, right? It was like under under the like hidden cameras and stuff. We should we shoot this just for tax cheaters? Just for tax cheaters. So under this bill, individuals uh, with business income or who own S corporations or partnerships and who have total income in the top 3% of taxpayers would receive a new Form 1099 to prepare a more accurate tax return and ensure their business income isn't hidden from the IRS. So like 1099 is just for high uh, income folks who uh, use like S corporations and pass through entities. Now, what is interesting to me about these acts is the money in Kana's bill. So this is the Cheaters Act. It would provide... 100 billion in extra funding to the IRS over 10 years to help it generate an estimated 1.2 trillion in revenue. So David, as you have always said, investing in the IRS in your revenue generating department has a good ROI. 100 billion to get 1.2 trillion. And you're not actually raising taxes, you are just enforcing the rules on the books. From a math perspective, if somebody came as a lawmaker and said, "Hey, we're going to increase the revenue available to us in our budget." By, did you say a trillion? It's 1.2 trillion. 1.2 trillion. All we have to do is spend 100 billion over the 10 years or something. Right. Yeah. Right? So it seems like I would sign off on that. So as a lawmaker, why wouldn't I sign off on this? <laughs> well, because you are part of that group of the Republican Party that believes in Grover Norquist's philosophy of like starve the beast. So, you know, you underfund the IRS deliberately and then that effectively lowers taxes. But I hate this as a way of doing it because it just encourages people to be unethical and to cheat on their taxes, right? Or, or yeah. like, so So this is good because, you know, it's just enforcing the rules that are on the books. 70 billion of this 100 billion would go to enforcement, 20 billion toward taxpayer services, 10 billion towards IT technology and operations support. And it would also require the IRS to audit a certain percentage of corporations and individuals. So we've talked about how in the last few years, the IRS is basically auditing effectively like zero pass-through entities. It's it's like- Yeah, it's just auditing poor people because it's easy. Right, right. And auditing you know, wealthy people and corporations is hard. So this would require the IRS using that new funding to audit 95% of corporations with more than 20 billion in assets, 50% of individual tax returns with income over 10 million a year, 20% of individual tax returns with income between 1 million and 5 million, and 33% of individual tax returns with income between 5 million and 10 million a year. And millionaires who falsify their tax returns would pay an additional penalty of 20 to 40% of the underpayment depending on their income under the bill. Now, setting aside how you feel about this politically, this is probably a good thing for accountants because more audits on taxpayers mean more work for us. Well, that's what I've been saying the whole time, right? You, you should always, like for accountants, their best interest is to always devote for the candidates that are going to keep taxes as complicated as possible. <laughs> well, and, and and the audits, you know, yeah, they provide a good source of income from like people who, you know, maybe they used bad tax preparers, so they did it themselves and they got it all screwed up. You know, they need your help because now they're under audit. I mean, uh, this could be this could be good for the profession, but it's also good because then it 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 just reduces the number of people who are out there just blatantly cheating on their taxes. And so, if you're an ethical accountant, EA CPA, you don't have to 
feel like you're losing out on work because you're not willing to do the shady things that the preparer down the street is who doesn't care about doing the right thing. So, uh, interesting, you know, these are just proposed laws at the point at this point, but uh, it would be, it would be nice. I think if the IRS had more of a budget, they they were, they were only able to answer so far this year, 25% of the calls that went to the IRS. So like 75% of the people who call the IRS never get, the phone never gets answered. And then of the people who even get through, most of them end up just going through like a automated system and never get a real person. Like this is not what we want as a customer experience for the IRS. I mean, they've talked about that. The the new head said he's going to make the IRS a little bit more like a delightful experience. So we will see, especially if they get the money. If they now if they get all that money and they don't do it, then we have a bigger problem. Right. So, so go ahead. Um, no, you go ahead. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Dext. Providing your clients with timely and accurate insights may be one of your most important jobs as the trusted advisor. For most, giving insights is easy, but giving both timely and accurate insights is much more challenging. This is where the one-two punch of Dext comes in. Dext Prepare will help you be timely. Dext Prepare will quickly capture all the receipts, bills, and statements to easily and automatically enter the data directly into the accounting system. Dex Precision will help you be accurate by finding anomalies and cleaning the data in the accounting system. Dex Precision also tracks your client's data health and performance metrics and provides powerful custom reports, including pivot tables. To learn more about the benefits and to schedule a one-on-one demo with the Dex team, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Dex. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash D-E-X-T. And during your demo, be sure to mention promo code podcast and you'll receive 30% off your first three months of any eligible annual partner plan. Accountants and bookkeepers make better business with Dext. So I made that mistake with Bitcoin, right? Yes. But at least that wasn't Citigroup who made a major, major mistake. So rewind on this a little bit, Blake. If you gave me a loan for $200, and I was supposed to pay you back $20 a month. And I screwed up. And the first month, I or maybe the first month I paid you $20. And the second month, I just paid you $180. You paid me the whole loan by the accident. The whole loan by accident. Should you give me that money back? I don't think I would. Like, Blake, it was a mistake. Give me my $180 back. I only want to pay you $20 a month. Yeah, I mean, if I did that with my mortgage and accidentally paid it off, I don't think that the I don't think they would give it back to me. There would be a whole new loan, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that is essentially the situation that occurred. So Citigroup, they were representing Revlon. And I think it possibly Revlon might have been in a bankruptcy or restructuring type situation. And so Revlon had a lot of lenders. We talked about this. And what they did is they accident they went to pay $7.8 million in interest. Citigroup went to pay interest on behalf of Revlon. On Revlon's yep. okay. and they accidentally sent the full balance of $893 million. They sent all the principal on this loan. The whole thing out. And some of these investors might have been hedge funds, et cetera. And they were just like, yeah, tough. Sorry. And they refused to give the money back. And this has gone to trial. And now the judges ruled against Citicorp, of course, because really that's a second loan. Like if somebody pays a loan off early, it's not like it's not like they sent mistakenly $800 million so that they weren't supposed to have. It was, right. it was a loan payment. So how the heck did City? accidentally pay hundreds of millions of dollars that they so <laughs> like this is nuts 
and, and this is all in court, and, and it's a combination of people errors and processes, as well as the fundamental real issue is crappy computer software. Uh, I mean, crappy that's app. That's the tie back to accounting tech. So essentially, they had some app called FlexCube. And, I, and I'll put a screenshot. I'll probably use this as artwork today. But you want to check out the show notes and, and look at this screenshot from this app. You know what it looks like to me? It looks like Minesweeper from, you know, <laughs> like, like the original the, the Minesweeper checkbox. It's so, yes. it's so old looking. Oh, my God. It looks like it's running on Windows 95 or something. Yeah, it has the, the little check. It's a black and white image that we have, but in color, that checkbox. That is the same checkbox that was in QuickBooks 4.0. Okay. For Windows, right? So this is this is old, old, old school UI. To be clear, what we are looking at is the bill pay system that City was using. Is that what this is? It looks like it's a trans that is but it's that's what I think it is. It's the utility to set up the payment to transfer the funds out. Okay. And essentially by default, the whole principles listed on here with a checkbox, like by default, it's set up to send the whole principle. So so the default setting on this application is what you don't want to do most of the time. Exactly. And apparently he, the subcontractor who was India that was working on this probably needed to separate it out to three other fields of the front fund and interest fields and need to separate this out. And even the explanation of this is confusing. So it's confusing UI. It's confusing to the person that did the job. And then on top of that, like it's even confusing to understand other than it's very obvious, the whole thing is confusing, right? And that's what caused it. And then because the pe- the transaction was this big, it had to get signed off. So the subcontractor went to his colleague in India and that person signed off on it. And then the senior Citibank official in Delaware signed off on it because there was nothing in the UI or there's no reason to believe that this was not an outlier, right? Nothing, nothing raised a window like, hey, this loan's not due until 2023. Are you sure you want to pay it off early? There was nothing to indicate that this wasn't a normal payment. I mean, I know from experience, like using apps like bill.com, which have complex approval workflows, when I have 20 bills to go through and approve or 20 payments, I'm not often like looking that carefully. I don't, you know, it's like really hard to when you're just trying to get through something and move on to the rest of your work to like look at every single bill and then look at every single field. And then you know, people are just blanket approving this. I know for certain that when I was having my clients approve stuff, they were definitely just sending it and not even looking. I, I suspect bill approval processes are right there with, have you ever fudged a timesheet? <laughs> like that same, like people just, yeah, it's a timesheet. Okay, it looks correct. And right. Let's move on. Right. I, I think that's the same type of thing. So there's three big lessons. I know we have app developers that listen to the product to our to our show, and I know that um, a lot of accounts, bookkeepers, everything we do, all our listeners are spending all day in apps. Yeah, yeah. Right. And this could happen to anybody on any of the apps we use. That this and, and very well, it happens every day. Like I see crappy UI and crappy confusion, and the lack of guardrails. So there's really three things for people to take away from this. One, you designers and product people. You have to have the default be the safe thing. So anytime you have a UI and it comes up, yes. the default has to be the safe one. You can't default to the worst possible scenario. Correct. Right? Yes. So it's very dangerous. It's just bad design from that point. Also, you either know two things. You either know what users want or you don't. And if you don't, you need to ask for ask them, not guess. Yes. And this, you see this a lot. People just assume or they make something optional. That's what should be required. And it causes downstream 
you know, problems in it uh, downstream. And then the big thing is this dependence on reviewers. Like it really doesn't actually help because it just slows people down. And the people are, like you said, are random. They kind of look at it. They don't look at it, right? And so ultimately, if you really want the safety here, it's not a people thing. It's fixing the tool. Right. Like have a validation check that says, hey, this bill is not due for two years or like you're, you're paying off this entire loan. Do you really want to do that kind of thing? Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't be that hard to build some logic into this system. And the good thing is for all the uh, UI designers out there, banks now are obviously going to be paying top dollar for better software. Well, thanks for bringing that. That's really fascinating. It's amazing what comes out of lawsuits sometimes. We actually got a peek inside of this horrible application that City was using to manage billions of dollars of money. It's amazing that it hasn't happened more often. Well, maybe it has and we just don't know, right? Like it just never goes to trial. It never makes the news. Like we wouldn't have found out about this unless City had tried to get the money back. That's correct. That is probably correct. Nobody would. Nobody was going to talk about that. And then on top of that, it would have just kept living, right? They would have never fixed it. But see, now they'll fix it. Because I, I imagine uh, Revlon's going to sue Citigroup over this. Hey, well, I got a tech story about bad technology, but not bad in that it doesn't work, bad in that it is evil. Did you know there's a dark side of accounting technology, David? I know there's a dark side to the internet. There's a dark side to software, but I did not know accounting technology now has a dark side. There's a dark side to everything, apparently. And in the world of accounting technology, that is tax zapper software. Have you heard of tax zappers? Tax zappers. No, I have not. So this is a category of software that I, I've heard about it, but probably only one time in my career in some other story years ago. I was listening to Bloomberg Tax, Talking Tax, their podcast. It's excellent. There was a story all about tax zapper software, and it reminded me of this. So here's the story, the gist of it. I'll try to summarize it for you. The title is Sales Hiding Software Outsmarts U.S. Tax Collectors. Were you going to say something, David? Uh, Yeah, uh, I just searched, and yes, we did talk about this exactly a year ago. (laughs) Really? (laughs) About tax zapper software. Okay, good. So so obviously, it's not gotten better. What was the story a year ago? I'm trying to find this story here. Um, What you need to know about, it's from accounting, but what you need to know about tax zapper software. So it's a high level um, overview of tax zapper, tax zapper software. Okay. Well, we have some more information a year later. This is from Richard Ainsworth, who was interviewed in this episode. He's a tax law specialist and adjunct professor at New York University Law School and Boston University School of Law. Can, can you remind me like what the tax zapper, is it tax zapper does? Is, does it take your transactions and just kind of delete some randomly or put some like, oh, this was a, this was a taxable item and they shift it to being a service? Is like what frame up what tax zapper software does? So picture a USB drive, a flash drive that you plug into your computer in your restaurant, your point of sale computer. So this flash drive has an application on it that is the tax zapper software. And it is designed to interface with your point of sale at your restaurant. This is mostly a restaurant thing. And what it does is it will selectively delete certain transactions throughout the day from your point of sale as if they'd never happened, thus reducing your revenue, reducing your sales tax liability, reducing your income tax liability. 
And seems like a good deal. Yeah, and <laughs> and it works really well if you program the tax zapper software to only eliminate the cash transactions. So when you go to a restaurant and or you go to a shop and it says cash only at the register, what is the first thing you think? <laughs> well, as an accountant or bookkeeper, somebody in this profession is like, they're avoiding sales tax. Every time. That's the first thing I think of if it's if it's in the US these days. <laughs> Especially if they give you like a sweet like $20 off if you pay cash, you know, like they're never... They- oh, yeah. I had an auto mechanic in LA. He had a, a discount. He would give you a, you know... 5% off your bill if you paid him in cash. Because that's a 40% return for him. It's yeah, right? Racket. Yeah. So that's the first thing I think of whenever I go to a store that's cash only. Well, the problem is that more and more people want to pay with credit cards. So it's bad business practice to only take cash these days. You're actually reducing your gross sales in most cases because you're just losing business. So you know, most of these tax avoiders have switched from the cash only method to, if they're sophisticated, tax zapper software. So like I said, it pulls out the cash transactions, deletes them like they never happened. Really hard for an auditor to ever find this, like almost impossible to figure this out, especially if it was cash that you you know got. And in restaurants, there's so much wastage. Like it's really hard to track the purchases to the sales if you're making hamburgers. That was the example in this episode. How do I know that the hamburgers, the 10 hamburgers that they should have made out of this lettuce and tomato and, and, and buns, you know, didn't just like go bad and they had to throw it out. Like Yeah, you could claim it they fell on the floor. You could yeah. uh, we had we had uh, shrinkage or wastage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really it's easier to do with retail, but even then if it's like uh, uh retail, if you paid cash for the items, then there's no and you don't have an invoice, there's like no trail uh, that the items were even ever in your store. Like so it's really hard for an auditor to fix this. And it's a huge problem. So so quantifying this is this is the first example of somebody quantifying this that I've seen. So this same guy, Richard Ainsworth, who was interviewed on the show, he looked at Quebec in Canada, sales data there, um, where in Quebec, they have implemented a, a system to quantify like the uh, the problem there because like the government is mandating that people who avoid sales tax implement a quote unquote black box that then monitors their point of sale so they can't do this in the future. Okay, so all right. So just right now I get this thumb drive. So I'm 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 buying a product, a tool, I put it on my computer, it allows me to delete sales. Yeah. So the sales tax agencies now are saying, hey, all point of sales have to have our little dongle hooked on instead. And I don't know if it's all of them or just for the cheaters. Okay. But it's enough. People get caught. Yeah, okay. people who get caught. Because like also if it's on a thumb drive, you know, the auditor can go in and actually look for the thumb drives and then pull them out and then test them, right? Because you obviously don't want the software installed on the actual computer because then it's really easy to find it. So they catch people, they start monitoring them, and that allows them to get an idea. It's like a sample of, you know, how much uh, money is being lost to this. Like if you, if you catch like a handful of cheaters, you can extrapolate how much is being lost across the entire industry. So... Richard Ainsworth says that based on what's going in happening in Quebec, if you apply that to the United States uh, GDP and all that, it's a twenty-one billion, twenty-one billion annual loss for state taxing authorities, including a one point eight billion shortfall for New York, seven hundred ninety-nine million for New Jersey, and nine hundred twenty-two for Pennsylvania. So this is a lot of money that's being lost every year due to fraud, and some of the solutions which we already started talking about, are really interesting, which is the government mandates that you install an application on your computer that 
monitors all this stuff all the time and reports back to the government in real time so they can track and make sure that you are remitting the proper amount of sales tax. And that is what is happening in countries like Fiji. In Fiji, every business is required to have one of these tracking applications on their point of sale. And all the receipts in Fiji have a QR code. The merchant has to put a QR code that has some sort of tracking ID that ties back to the information being reported to the government. And this is the best part. I love This is the part I love. If you as a consumer take that receipt and scan the QR code with your phone, you are entered into a lottery. So everybody in Fiji wants these receipts and they take them home and they scan them with their phone to get entered in the lottery. And if the merchant isn't reporting the sale to the government, the ticket doesn't work. The lottery ticket's void. It doesn't, doesn't work. See. And then people get upset and they complain. And then they, the merchant gets caught. It's a very creative use of that. Right? And, and I think uh, Mexico has a, like a similar barcode thing with their invoices and bill payments, which has made it like historically hard for QuickBooks and Zero to like, get into the Mexico market because the requirements are kind of wacky. You can't just create an invoice. Right. Yeah, yeah. Every invoice goes to the government and gets a stamp, a, a digital stamp of some sort. So that's how they're doing it. Yeah. This this is actually a bigger problem outside the US in countries where they have value added taxes because that tax could be 25, 30%. And so there's a real incentive for people there, like a bigger incentive for them to skip out on this stuff. Whereas here, you know, maybe it maxes out at like 10%, around 10%. That's our highest sales tax. So, you know, restaurants can save a lot of money and and businesses that have low margins tend to do this more because it makes a bigger difference for them. So I can tell you there's two survey data that uh, two surveys I have uh, available, but it kind of indicates whatever money they're stealing from this, they're not using to pay their rent. So the New York City Hospitality Alliance did a survey of about 400 restaurants and 92% said that they could not foot their bill for rent last month. This is in New York. In New York City. 92%. Wow. Only 8.4% only paid all the rent and about 46% paid half and the other 45% paid no rent at all. That's really worrying. And this is one of my big concerns about the Paycheck Protection Program, which is that it provided a lot of money for restaurants and other businesses to pay their employees, but it didn't provide money explicitly for rent and overhead. And like, if that stuff keeps happening, you just fall behind further and further behind on it, you're never going to be able to pay it. It's not like that goes away. It's, It's a liability Right, so eventually you're just going to go out of business, or you're going to get kicked out of your your unit. Especially because right now the New York City restaurants are only allowing indoor dining up to twenty five percent. Like I know in Arizona there's tables blocked off, but it's probably fifty sixty five percent depends on the location that they're allowing usage. Right, and then because outdoor dining, which was allowed, New York, you can't outdoor dine right now in New York City. Right, you just it's too cold. The weather's not great, so they just don't. The money's not there. And you can't, in probably, but my understanding is restaurants really can't even do this on 50% capacity. This is what I've always hated about the lockdowns that is completely separate from the health emergency aspect. It's that you have legislators who are, and governors who are locking down and, and preventing these businesses from, from making money, but not providing any support to them to deal with it. You can't do that. If you're going to shut down a business for a long amount of time, like we're talking more than a few weeks, and prevent them from making money, you got to you got to fill the gap. Like, I just don't even think it's, it's just it's just wrong. 
had another uh, survey. This is um, from Alignable. They uh, did a road to recovery report and they um, surveyed 3,316 small business owners. And of that, 32% have a month or less in cash reserves. Well, that's an that's always been an issue. And now, and now 15% don't have any cash reserves at all. And then the other part of the survey, it's actually hitting minority business owners and female business owners worse. So uh, almost half, 47% for minority-owned business, doesn't have, they have less than a month of cash reserves. And for women, it's about 39. So, so for all small businesses, it's 32. But for minorities, it's almost 50%. And women, it's almost 40%. So there's just uh, things are tight. And you're right. It goes back to like businesses being shut down. And they, they're they going to have to reopen. And, and it's funny, like the way you think about this. I just went through our, our school district. My kids are finally going back to school after spring break. So it's been a full year before they've done any hybrid, right? It's all been remote. And I sat through a five-hour last week, a five-hour school board meeting. Only to find out that three members of the school board have already had their kids back in school because there's these there's oh because they sent they send their kids to private schools. Well, no, they were in their own district, but there's like some programs and you could get them on a special thing. But all they basically they said, oh, this um, homeschooling and uh, remote schooling doesn't really work for my own children. <laughs> yeah, but they're willing to make everybody else have to. I, yeah, exactly. I, I was I, unbelievable. But what tipped this is the way you survey people. They've been surveying parents you know, for the last year. And the options were always like 100% remote and these three or four weird hybrids, right? That never made any sense. But they never put on the survey 100% return to school. They finally did it. 80% of parents picked 100% yeah. return to school. I think any parent- and this, this is, you know, 12,000 responses on the survey. I mean, if you talk and to- so They have to go back. They, can't, they have to go back now. They, they, they can't rule against this. I haven't talked to a single parent who said, oh yeah, remote learning is working great. Or even that it's working for kids that are, especially kids that are like elementary and middle school, it's just not doable. It just does not work. I mean, the only option is for you as a parent to quit your job and just be their teacher full time. Yeah. So the the shutdowns are are having, they have to end and it's happening more and more. Do you have anything else? Do you have any surveys? Do you want to jump into app news? This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay Financial. Do your clients use banks that make it harder for you to close the books? Do they make it harder to deliver financial visibility for clients? I'm guessing you said yes to both these questions. And that's because traditional banks aren't designed for your relationships with your small business clients. Thankfully, Relay Financial is. Relay is FDIC-insured online banking that makes bookkeeping easy. You can access all your clients in a single portal, enjoy rich direct bank feeds to QuickBooks Online and Xero, automate payables with multi-stage approvals, and even spin up a new checking account for clients in seconds right from your browser. To join the thousands of accounting and bookkeeping firms that are standardizing their clients on Relay, check out their partner program at cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Relay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-L-A-Y. I have a survey. You know, I see these surveys on CPA Trendlines and I find them fascinating. They they release them in little drips and drabs and I got a few. Here is a survey about which of the following areas do you wish you had more time for? This is CPAs because it's CPA Trendlines. The number one, three years running, number one thing that CPAs wish they had more time for is vacationing and relaxing. No big surprise there. Uh, Number two, that was 50%, by the way. Number two at 
around 40% is research and development for improving client offerings or service. Then around the same amount, prospecting for new clients, dropping down to around 35% professional development. Following that, not far behind, business management and training on software. So what I found interesting about this is that while the number one thing is vacationing, uh, CPAs want a break, which is no surprise. Again, all the other things are really about the business of running a practice that they wish they had more time to improve client offerings. They wish they had more time to manage the business, to train on software, to prospect for new clients, to do professional development. And it all points to a lack of of time. And what are we spending all our time on? Well, it's like doing the work. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. Everybody's so busy all the time that they don't have time for vacations or running the business, like working on the business itself. But then if you ask those same people, well, what if you raised your prices? If you doubled your rates, would you lose half your clients? The answer is often no. And that is simplistic, but it's the solution to this problem. Well, it is a solution, but if they, if you raise your prices and you don't, you don't, if you don't have your clients leave when you raise your prices, the same, your revenue is doubled, which is great, but the the workload's still the same and you never really get to work on your company. So maybe it's triple or quadruple. Like, I don't know what the magic number is, but you, you basically have to get rid of 25% of your clients to give yourself that bandwidth to work on your business. Well, but you could hire somebody. I mean, if you were able to double your rates, and you didn't lose any business. Oh, that's the way to look at it. Yes. <laughs> you could hire somebody to help you. Right. I, I, you know, I know, and I'm not advocating that you go tomorrow and double your rates, but this should be at least like an annual thing where you raise your rates significantly enough to cull some of the worst clients. I mean, the hard part though, it's easier said than done. The hard part about that is that we know our clients, we like them. I mean, I was guilty of this too. Like we don't want to raise the prices on them because we feel bad about it. So, um, you know, maybe we need to be more heartless on our clients and do the opposite with our staff, be nicer to them. Maybe apps like Prexignition, et cetera, could just build in a crappy UI that makes you accidentally overcharge your clients. <laughs> or no, what if you could, in Prexignition, set up a f- automatic increase in prices where it's like an automated email that just goes out to the clients after a certain amount of time that says what you would normally say, which is... Oh, and takes you out of the emotional decision of this. It just happens. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's on autopilot and it only becomes an issue if the client complains about it. I think we just came up with the next great feature for that app, David. It's possible. That leads us right into app news. All right. Let's talk app news. So what you got? My my big thing was that tax app or I don't really have a lot. Oh, I have a story about Robinhood. This is quick. Jump in that one. Yeah. Okay. So... You know, Robinhood, uh, they're super popular, super successful, but they just don't seem to have their shit together. Well, I mean, they, they've grown at insanity rates, right? right? I don't know how. And Well, but especially when it comes to compliance. Like last year, or maybe it was the year before, they went out and then launched a checking account, and they had never bothered to get approval to have a checking account, which, you know, there's like a whole regulatory regime about that. You've got to get FDIC insurance and all that, and they didn't have it. <laughs> and there's a strategy to that. I mean, that was Uber's whole model. Yeah. We'll just not follow any laws and just do whatever we want and then get consumer adoption, then we'll go to court. Well, that worked well for Uber because they were just fighting local jurisdictions, but you don't want to go up against the federal government that way. And that's what Robinhood failed to understand. 
this is not as extreme as that, but the the thing they screwed up is uh, they were supposed to have delivered 1099 forms to report gains and losses to their users, and they missed the deadline. <laughs> so users were complaining that they didn't have their 1099s. They were worried that they wouldn't get them, and you can't file your taxes. And they've got millions and millions of people that probably have just a W-2 and Robinhood. So they were just waiting to file their taxes and get their refunds. And uh, they couldn't. So there was a whole kerfuffle on Twitter. Robinhood says that they have now delivered most of them. They were a few days late. But it's just like amateur, right? Like just... It, 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 you mean it keeps happening with the same company? Right. It's it, Clearly, there's a uh, issue of like oversight. Of that company or, anyway that's maturity yeah yeah, yeah I hear you that's my uh that's my app news story so uh i can jump and i have a couple of app stories here and a lot of it's tied to um e-commerce mm-hmm. right and concepts of like i'm trying to figure out like is the future super apps right and apps or is the future still separate apps because i, I feel like you know separate the standalone apps are still getting raises and we'll get into this a little bit so the first one off though you talked about a bank charter brex so brex is like an expense card right? For startups, mm-hmm. they have officially applied for a bank charter. Oh, that that kind of makes a lot of sense. They uh, announced this, that they are going to establish a bank and they've applied in Utah. It'll be located in Draper, Utah, and it'll be wholly owned subsidiary of Brex. Gotcha. Um, and so that's just a, it's just a small note, right? Mm-hmm. So Brex is opening a, a bank account. Um, let's see more apps that are mooshing together. Um, IWOCA. It's an Australian app, uh, IWOCA Pay. I really don't know how to say that. It's actually, I find it a very strange na- name. I almost like, remember the Muppet that goes Waka Waka Waka? <laughs> I Waka? I Waka Pay. I, I don't know if that's the right name. That or sounds wrong, but maybe it's right. But I Waka Pay, is it, they're in that game of the, um, what do you call it? The spreading your payments over six months. The payment plans, the the payment plan players, right, that are out there, and they've been exploding. They're exploding these payment, the pay it later options, right? Yep. Well, they've integrated with Zero, actually into Zero's payment platform. So if I'm using Zero and I send out an invoice, and it has like the pay by you know the typical ACH credit card, right? There's going to be now a button that says pay over six months or something like that with I walk up pay. <laughs> I'm sorry, every and, time you say that, I laugh. Okay, so. So think about this. As a small business owner using Zero, when you send an invoice to somebody, you're just giving them an additional way to pay. Right. And I, I think if it's on the invoice itself, that's going to pa- bypass you know these other services that exist. Yeah, right? Because yeah. you, now you as a small business owner, you just get it out of the box with Zero. You don't have to configure after paying these other services on your website. Mm-hmm. Uh, which leads me into uh, PayPal. So PayPal wants to be the, the world's next super app. And we've talked about these super apps before where basically you use one app to get your payments and shopping and saving and investing in cryptocurrency all on one mobile platform. And, and PayPal owns Venmo now. So is that the vector they're going to choose to take over the world? Because like It's all vectors. So, this is, so for example, um, we just talked about this uh, delaying your payments, those payment plans. Yeah. Right. They have that built in. So if you're a consumer and you want to do a payment plan and you already have a PayPal account, why would you go and sign up for Afterpay or one of these third-party apps, right? So there's this concept of once you're once you're in the super app, you're going to do everything in there. And PayPal is very aggressive about this. They just had a recent meeting with their investors, 
And they expect to continue to grow their user base and they will have 750 million users by 2025. On on what? Between PayPal and Venmo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, they're right. big. So, so they're pushing a billion, you know, three quarters of a billion users on one platform. So what's going to make it a super app though? So 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 we'll talk about some of these things. Okay. Um, I mean, in general, the market, and we've discussed this, the, this there's a lot of competition between the Stripes and the Squares, right? And the fintech players, and then big tech, Google, Amazon, Apple, you know, now QuickBooks is getting this game. Everybody wants to own you. Yeah, right? they want to be, they want to own your eyeballs, right? When it comes to finance. And, and obviously, we've all been in this cloud accounting space where there's all these disconnected apps, yeah. right? And so the, the concept is, is you're going to do everything in a common platform because the, their point is the common platform is going to allow machine learning and artificial intelligence, and then it's going to be able to give you more personalized recommendations if you're a consumer. So this all goes back to, remember when PayPal paid $4 billion for Honey? Yes. And do you remember what Honey was? Uh, Honey is the browser extension that gives you coupon discounts when you're going around shopping on the web. Yeah, it watches every website you go to. Yeah. And like, oh, you're on weightliftingtools.com and then you, there's a discount code and it puts it in your shopping cart for you. And in exchange, you're giving them basically your entire life uh, information. Yes. Everything you see online. And so they all, one thing PayPal is going to do is PayPal is intending to partner with traditional financial services as well. Savings account, direct deposit, check cashing, investing. So they don't want it just to be the standalone app. And that's where I think it crosses that line of super app. Like now you don't have, if you want to do a truly uh, a 401k plan or a retirement plan, right? Direct deposit. You can do all that through PayPal. They're not, you're never going to want to leave PayPal is the way they're setting this up. Right, right. Um, they've opened up to Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some interesting uh, interesting stats about this. And I imagine it's probably the same truth true for uh, Square's cash app. PayPal found that half of its customers that have used crypto, they log into the app several times a day. I open my PayPal app two, maybe three times a month. So people with that have crypto are using it several times a day. And what happens is it creates a halo effect, which allows them to start using other PayPal services. And it, it just continues on, continues on. Um, then they, I didn't know, did you know they have a PayPal cash card that's just for small businesses? I feel like I heard about this, but I... It's just like this. It's just like the uh, the square one where if you use it inside the PayPal network, you don't need a bank. It just keeps all the money so in PayPal. I get paid by PayPal. It goes instantly into my PayPal debit card or whatever you call it, and then I can. That's spend a business. It. Yep. Yeah, and, and I don't have to spend wait. that other PayPal people. Exactly. Right. Gotcha. You're, you're grasping that, um, and then I already talked about their buy now pay later features, and and then the last thing is you know they're they're doing the QR codes because I had a couple. I, I didn't even make the show. I think um, Revolut Bank announced we're going to have QR codes. So all these little things, all these separate apps are doing, PayPal already has it all. So now they're, they're turning that corner of like, okay, we already have all the pieces of the technology in the stack. How do we just blow this up and get people to never not use PayPal for everything? Right. I mean, it sort of makes me think of um, they're displacing the banking app because that's where historically people have gone to do everything is log into Bank of America or Chase or whatever. And if you can do it all, though, in Venmo or in the PayPal app or in the Square Cash app, then that's going to be the new bank for Gen Z and beyond, right? And I suspect next week we're going to Square releases numbers and we're probably going to see a similar strategy laid out from Square about because they want to be the super app. They want to be the super app for small businesses, right? Yeah. Interesting. And, and, and this is where Intuit, if you start thinking about the this Intuit 
I think secretly wants to be a super app. This is why they jumped heavy into the e-commerce space, right? They've launched their QuickBooks cash because if not, somebody else is going to do it and you have to keep everybody in that app. And there's probably when it's said and done, there's going to be two winners. It's just like there's app, you're, or I guess there's three, right? You're either Windows, Google Chrome, or Apple, or if on the phones, you're either Android or Apple. Like at the end, there's only one or two people that are going to win. There's only going to be a handful of winners. Hey, speaking of QuickBooks Cash, we got a voicemail from a listener, and I believe uh, something about that. Should we take a listen? Yeah, let's do that. Hey, guys, this is Giuseppe. I'm calling from Miami, Florida. I was just listening to the podcast and heard you guys talk about QuickBooks Cash, and I literally just burst out saying, no, it doesn't, uh, when you were talking about whether or not you could turn off QuickBooks Cash automatically. You can turn it off. It's very difficult. I went through a five-hour support call to try and figure out why my money continued to go into the QuickBooks Cash account, which I had turned on just to experiment for my clients. And uh, I found out that you have to actually go to the account and settings screen and then click on payments. And from that screen, you can turn off and redirect your deposit. But there's also an instant deposit feature that gets turned on that's tied to the debit card with QuickBooks Cash. You also have to de-link the instant deposit from the QuickBooks Cash debit card and put it onto your regular card if you can want to continue instant cash. Um, if you don't want to continue instant deposit, you can just turn that off as well from that same screen. Six hours on with support, they couldn't help me. I ended up figuring all that out on my own. Tell everyone you know, stay away from QuickBooks Cash. It's horrible. Thanks. Wow, six hours with support to turn that off. So it sounds like I lucked out when the first when I first set it up and it was defaulted setting to have all my merchant services go to the QuickBooks account. And I said, I'll set that up later and I, and I opted out of that. Sounds like I might have made a, the right call here. Yeah, I think that's what we should clarify is that it, David didn't change it after. He just never opted in in the first place. And so he didn't get locked into having his deposits go into the QuickBooks cash account. Your instinct was correct. Yeah, don't don't opt in. Get it set up and then see how it works and then decide if you want to move your money over. Well, Giuseppe, sorry to hear about that. That is uh, atrocious. Gosh, six hours on support. But the other piece is don't experiment with these types of things with clients. Right. <laughs> Do it. Use it on your your business first. Well, you know, when I was in practice, I always had this dream of getting big enough where in the lobby, we would have a cafe and the cafe would be a subsidiary of my accounting practice. And that's where we would try all of the tech. So it'd be a real business because we would sell pastries and coffee and whatnot. And we'd have all the point of sales and stuff. And we could just mess around with it because it doesn't need to make money. You know, our clients could come in and, and use all the tech and try it out. I would love to do that for an accounting firm. Wouldn't that be fun? I've always felt like that... And when I used to work at Intuit, engineers, like if you hire a brand new engineer, you're going to pay them whatever, 120 grand a year to write code for QuickBooks. Give them 50 grand, tell them to start a business for a year, then come back and write code. <laughs> Have them use QuickBooks to run their business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. And then really learn about how to run a small business, then write code for small businesses. So it's that same concept, right? It's that eating your dog food. And you're right. Like the, if you had a business to just experiment with, you would, you'd really be able to do really cutting edge stuff. And then not only that, imagine the, um, the going with your example, you could bring your client in and you could be like, look, you, do you like this experience? We could do this with your business. Exactly. It's a great selling tool. It's a great educational tool. One of the reasons I'm good at accounting and I, I 
I, I swear it's because I had my bookkeeping freelance business while I was in school learning all my debits and credits. So I could go and apply everything I was learning in a QuickBooks file, in a zero file, and see it in real life and not just do it theoretically. And uh, and I had access to all the tools as an accountant. I could set up demo accounts and stuff like that and actually try it. It makes a huge difference. A few more quick stories that are app stories and they're all related to e-commerce. So big ones, Shopify, they announced their Q4 results. Their Q4 results were 198 million earnings versus 2019, 50 million. So they've gone up fourfold. Wow. So huge, huge, huge. Yeah, yeah. And obviously they're on everybody's radar, including Amazon. So Amazon this week purchased a competitor, an Australian startup, but that's a competitor to Shopify. So Amazon's finally recognizing that Shopify is becoming a serious competitor to them. Mm-hmm. And they're starting to go down that path and head down that path. And then the uh, the other big one is there's an app called Sin7. I think if you're in the zero marketplace, you probably know about them more because they started in New Zealand. So Sin7 has acquired Deer Systems and OrderHive. So basically, they're going to combine all three products because the um, Deer Systems, a lot of smaller businesses will use it for... Um, manufacturing inventory, those types of things. And then since seven really takes things for uh, bigger manufacturers and a lot of import importers and complex um, ERP level type stuff. And then order hives really strong about the e-commerce stuff. So all three of these have been pulled together now and they're going to form one new company. And the only other note on that is the purchases were just straight up cash. So since seven just straight up bought your inventory and straight up bought or order hive. Well, David, that's all our time for this week. Until we next meet, stay sane, stay safe. You know, good good luck on building your recording studio. How's that going? It, it's 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 chugging along slowly but surely. We'll see how the Bitcoin goes. I mean, maybe maybe. It, do you think it's, I'm richer now than we started the call? You should go check go check on your uh, PayPal uh, app and see. Well, I should move it to a PayPal app because right now it's just a. A browser thing. All right. We'll let everybody go. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Time for the classifieds. Looking to radically increase productivity as a QuickBooks Pro Advisor? Instead of juggling a tech stack with your practice, you can now track and manage your workflow, communicate with clients, and manage files, all in one single, powerful, yet amazingly simple platform, ClientHub. When you leverage Client Hub's all-in-one platform that goes across your team and your clients, magic happens. Ready to start feeling that in your firm? Start your free trial at clienthub.app today. Use promo code CAP25 to receive 25% off your first three months. How does your firm manage tech discovery? Hundreds of tools are launching around the globe every week and identifying the right tech to help run your firm and advise your clients is growing more and more complex. Launch for Accountants reviews hundreds of new tech launches each week in the accounting, fintech, and B2B space. They handpick their favorites for accountants and send them directly to your inbox every Sunday. In 2020, Launch for Accountants reviewed over 8,000 product launches. To get the six best launches of the week in your inbox each Sunday, sign up at launchfa.com. That's launchfa.com. We have to tell you about a new app on the QuickBooks App Store called Uncat. It has nothing to do with cats. It has everything to do with fixing uncategorized expenses. If you're still exporting spreadsheets of uncategorized expenses from QBO to send to your clients, you need to stop doing that. 
Uncat notifies your clients about uncategorized expenses and lets them add descriptions and receipts online. You can then assign expenses to the right accounts and everything syncs with QBO so you don't have to copy and paste anything. Uncat is fast and easy for you and your clients so everybody's happier. So ditch the spreadsheets and manual data entry and head over to uncat.com. As a Cloud Accounting Podcast listener, your first client is free. That's www.uncat.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.